Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn it to John chapter 15. That's where we'll be at. John chapter 15. How do you prepare yourself for hard times ahead? When you are told difficult days are coming, how do you persevere in your faith when so many around you seem to be falling away? How do you remain faithful amidst the growing hostility toward Christianity and the rampant deconstruction of evangelicalism when even amongst Bible-believing Christians there seems to be a disagreement about everything? From politics to views on racism to sexual abuse to even masks, just to name a few. But much more than that, how can you be fruitful as disciples of Jesus in days of deep division? Is it possible? We're continuing our study through John's gospel in our series, In the Beginning Was the Word. In these past few weeks, we've been focusing on the seven I am sayings of Jesus and its relevant passages. Today, from John chapter 15, verse 1 through chapter 16, verse 4, we're looking at the final seventh I am saying of Jesus, I am the true vine. Well, in our passage this afternoon, as Jesus' earthly ministry is drawing to a close, Jesus prepares his disciples on how they will be able to persevere through the oncoming trials of faith. As you can see numerous times as his ministry nears its finale, Jesus cautions his disciples. From last week's passage, Pastor Jeremy preached from John 14, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. And in verse 9, I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. And at the end of our passage in John chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Jesus warns his disciples again, doesn't he? Look with me to 16 verse 1. It says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And then in verse 16, 4, I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember, you may remember that I told them to you. What nerve-wrecking warning and at the same time reassuring words, aren't they? Well, the purpose of why Jesus says what he says in chapter 15 and the context in which Jesus claims, I am the true vine, is for their perseverance. Jesus says, trials are coming, difficult days are ahead, yet I am the true vine. I tell you these things so that you won't fall away. Remember these things so that you may endure in faith. Well, what did Jesus teach his disciples in order to prepare them for what was ahead. From John chapter 15, verse 1 through 16, verse 4, I want to share with you three ways Christians can persevere through trials. Three ways Christians can persevere through trial. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Point number one from verses 1 through 12, remain in Christ. Remain in Christ. Verses 1 through 11. From verses 12 through 17, regard one another in sacrificial love. Regard one another in sacrificial love, 12 to 17. And finally, from verses 18 through the rest of the passage, remember Jesus in persecution. Remain, regard, remember. I pray these words will encourage you today of the necessity to abide in Jesus today and every day. And I pray these words will comfort you as some of you may be currently experiencing afflictions in your life. Trusting that God prunes 
He disciplines those he loves in order to grow you in your reliance on him and in order to increase your fruitfulness. I pray for any non-Christians here if you are experiencing a lack of meaning in your life, a lack of joy, a lack of purpose, that you would hear these words as an invitation to trust in Jesus who is the source of all life and all meaningfulness in this life. So without further ado, look with me to our passage, John chapter 15, verses 1 through chapter 16, verse 4. If you are new to the Bible, the gospel of John is found about two-thirds into the Bible. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. So John chapter 15, verse 1. And please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message so you can follow along. John chapter 15, verse 1 and on, it says this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I choose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. 
And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. How do we persevere when trials come our way? Point number one, remain in Jesus from verses 1 through 11. Remain in Jesus from verses 1 through 11. Now, given our focus on the I am statements, this point, the first point will be much longer. The second two points will be much more brief. Uh, The word remain is used in the NIV, CSB, and the NASB, which is the same word, abide, that you see in the ESV translation. Either way, you get the emphasis and the urgent irony of Jesus' exhortation to his timid disciples in his parting words. My hour has come to depart from out of this world to the Father. Where I am going, you cannot come, but abide in me. In verse 4, three times. Whoever abides in me, in verse 5. If anyone does not abide in me, in verse 6. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, in verse 7. Abide in my love, in verse 9. Abide in my love, twice, in verse 10. Nine times, in ten verses. Remain in me, Jesus says. Stay with me. Don't stray from me. Stay close to me. Be connected to me. Roll with me. Vibe with me. Abide in me. Are you getting the force of Jesus' parting words? Are you getting the hint Jesus wants you to abide? But why is Jesus so adamant about his disciples abiding or remaining in him? And what in the world did that mean for them as Jesus was parting from them? And what does it mean for us who have never been with Jesus physically? Well, that's what Jesus was teaching us in these verses. That's why Jesus says in verse 1, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. You see, Jesus was teaching his disciples then and now there is no life apart from him, that he is the source of life, that there is no spiritual life without him. There is no true life absent Christ. Remember now from last week's passage, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the last verse of chapter 14, Jesus instructs his disciples, rise, let us go from here. And so Jesus and his disciples were leaving the upper room. And perhaps they were walking across the city of Jerusalem. And as they walked down into the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, on their way, perhaps they would have passed the great temple gate of the holy city, which was decorated with elaborate golden grapevines. You see, similar to the ways Americans see the stars and stripes as our symbol and value of our freedom and prosperity, Israel saw the grapevine as the preeminent symbol of national life and vitality. The grapevine was visible everywhere in Judea, laced throughout their city walls, minted on their coins. Well, We don't know for certain what caused Jesus to reference the vine on this particular night, but what we do know from Scripture is the profound significance the vine had in Israel's history. As the Old Testament Scriptures widely refer to Israel as the vine that was meant to produce abundant fruit. Yet the picture we get from Scripture is that rather than Israel the vine being fruitful, What we see in Scripture in the Old Testament uh, is that what has transpired in Israel's history is degeneration and barrenness instead. So in Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. 
He dug it up and cleared it of its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And Isaiah 5, 7, it describes Israel more explicitly in this way. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And in Jeremiah 2.21, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, asks, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Hosea 10.1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Yet the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his own pillars. And from our scripture reading today, Psalm 80 Verses 8 through 10, the psalmist laments, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out all the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. Then in verse 12, Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages and, and all that move in the field will feed on it. Then the psalmist prays to God, doesn't he? Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand had planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Well, it is in God answering this very prayer, Jesus proclaims to his disciples and to us all this symbolic reality, this significant claim, I am the true vine. I am the fulfillment of what Israel's son was supposed to be but never was. I am the new and greater son. I am the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. I am the fruitful son. I am the son who by my very nature as the true vine brings forth good fruit unto the father who brings many sons to glory according to Hebrews 2.10. I am that I am. There's much more we can say about Jesus' seventh and final I am saying, but I want to get to the other verses. In verses 2 through 11, Jesus teaches his disciples three important lessons about our identity, our security, and our guarantee, which will serve as our subpoints or handles to guide us through these verses. As Jesus has already made clear, Israel was not the vine. Jesus is the vine. Where Israel's sons proved fruitless, Jesus proved himself to be fruitful. He is the vine, and his father is the vine dresser. If his disciples were to endure through oncoming afflictions and trials before they go any further, They were to aptly understand who they were, their identity, their right standing, their place, their position, their relationship to God himself, that he is everything, that he is the substance, that he is our worth and our value. They were to understand who they were in light of who he is. And for the 11 disciples, understanding first who Jesus was, was the utmost importance in the trials they would face ahead. That's why Jesus made sure they understand They were not the vine. They were not even the fruit, the the luscious, the juicy grapes. They were not even that. 
Jesus says it more explicitly in verse 5, doesn't he? I am the vine, you are the branches. He is the source of life. You are the twigs. This is our identity, brothers and sisters. We are the branches as disciples of Christ. But lest you think the branches have no purpose whatsoever in God's vineyard, think again. That's why in verse 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You see, Jesus makes it clear repeatedly, actually, in verse 2, 4, 5, and 8, that the infallible mark of a true believer is, indeed, fruitfulness. Because fruitfulness ensures the branch is connected to the life source. Fruitfulness evidences that the branch is alive. That's what Jesus means by verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, twigs, branches can do nothing. I hope you really understand this amazing saying of Jesus. I hope you are encouraged knowing Jesus' heart and God's sovereign grace upon his children. Not that we have done anything in ourselves to merit such blessing, but simply that when we are connected to the vine, we live. Hallelujah. When we are connected to the vine, we are alive and we bear fruit. But even in the midst of such tremendous teaching, so many of us may be caught up in thinking merely about ourselves as we often do, don't we? Not enough about Christ. We think about how we don't measure up compared to others. We think about how we don't do enough or produce enough, how we are not fruitful enough. Well, I think in this sense, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary is absolutely right. So many commentators and well-meaning preachers and theologians have perhaps not been so helpful in how they translated this verse. Many interpret verse 2 as every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away as the ESV does. Some translations translate that phrase takes away as removes or cuts off in conjunction with verse 6. Dead branches are thrown away, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, the word arrow in Greek does have in one of its four meanings the idea of being cut off or removed. But notice closely, this is why I want you to have your Bibles open, the first part of verse 2, it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Every branch in me cannot not bear fruit. Now contrast that with verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. I think these verses are talking about two entirely different branches. In verse 2, the branch is connected to Jesus. In verse 6, the branch is not connected to Jesus. Hence, Dr. Boyce is right that the word arrow should actually be translated to lift up or to pick up, which makes a lot more sense, and it aligns with God's role as the vine dresser and his character in the context and flow of that verse much better, doesn't it? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up, he picks up, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it will bear more fruit. Brothers and sisters, make sure of it. Every branch in Christ will bear fruit. He will make it so that you will be fruitful. 
Whether he lifts you up closer to himself, whether he prunes you or disciplines you or sometimes pains you temporarily, as according to Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 11, write those verses down and meditate on it later. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, his will for you, his will for me, his will for us is that we will be fruitful. You are a faithful branch. That is who you are in the vine. And that makes much more sense in connection with the next verse, doesn't it? As Jesus affirms the disciples' security in verse 3. Already you are clean. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So understand, brothers and sisters, fruitfulness is not the measure of your worth or your identity But again, it is the distinguishable mark of a true child of God. Jesus says you are already clean, not by anything you have done, but by God's electing decree. Before the foundations of the world, you were made his own. That's why Jesus says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That your fruit should abide, remain, last. Hallelujah. You are the good news of his sinless life and his substitute death and his resurrection and you were made clean and whole. And as Gentile, which is all of us in this room, we were grafted into the vine according to Romans 11. We were adopted into his family. Hallelujah. And the work that God has begun in us, Philippians 1.6 guarantees will be brought to completion. Well, some of you may be wondering what kind of fruitfulness are these verses talking about? I get that my identity is secure in Christ. I get that Jesus will do the work in and through me. But I haven't led anyone to Christ. I have trouble evangelizing many, many days of the weeks. Gosh darn, in this busy, difficult season, I'm even having trouble reading my Bible and praying. And if you're thinking that, perhaps you're thinking, man, I am bearing very little fruit or no fruit at all. Well, in a very timely tweet... Our friend Matt Smethers recently tweeted, or maybe it was retweeted, I'm not sure, but a very sobering and humbling truth and reminder, which says this, of the 60 times fruit appears in the New Testament, none is a reference to numbers, not one. The fruit that Jesus speaks of has very little to do with numbers, brothers and sisters. Let that be an encouragement to you. How many people you share the gospel with? How many people we can fill seats on Sundays how many people we can baptize, how many services a church can facilitate, how many sites a church can conglomerate, which, by the way, the focus of those kinds of metrics is one of the most disgusting perversions of our modern-day evangelicalism. Instead, Jesus and the Bible has something entirely different in mind in terms of fruitfulness. The Bible teaches not of material fruit, but of spiritual fruit, according to Galatians 5, through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The truth of the matter is, if you are connected to the vine, these fruits are sure, guaranteed, certain to produce in you. Our fruitfulness is always in conjunction to the vine. More specifically, our passage explains what kinds of fruit branches connected to the true vine will bear. And here's our guarantee. Guarantee number one, faithful prayer. Look with me to verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It ought not to be so difficult for us to grasp that God loves to hear and answer prayers. Amen? James 5, 16 says, The prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
So as we abide in Christ, brothers and sisters, and his words abides in us, our will will be aligned to his and our prayers will be answered according to God's will. Amen? How many of us can testify of this truth? That God hears and answers the prayers of his people. If you do not have a practice of recording your prayers, writing down your prayers, I want to encourage you to do so in the new year. Our upcoming church-wide 40 days of fasting and prayer may be a good start as you submit yourself to God, as you pray for God to search your heart and show you areas of your life where it's consumed by the, the things of this world. As you purge yourself through fasting of those areas, pray humbly, Lord, show me your will. Lord, conform me more like Jesus. Lord, align me to yourself and watch and watch how the Lord will answer your prayers. Furthermore, fruitfulness will evidence itself in the Father's glory. That's verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As a father of three young children, Katie, Micaiah, and Emmett, I don't have too high other, other people will say differently. I don't think I have too high of an expectation for my kids. I don't expect them to go out and make money. Uh, as Christmas approaches, I don't expect them to get me or their mom a gift. As hard as it is, and they are getting better, you can give me parenting advice later, but I don't really expect them to clean their rooms often as they should. I don't expect them to cook their own food, do their own dishes, even though Katie helped me with dishes this morning. I don't expect them to do their own laundry but one thing I always do, tell them, if you want to make mom and dad happy, if you want to show us how much you love us, listen. Listen to us. There is nothing more I want for my children than for them to listen. So if there's any children in this room, if you are here listening to the sermon right now, the best Christmas gift and birthday gift you can give to your parents to make them happy, to make them proud, to make them not have marital strife, for you to not be disciplined, spanked, timed out, whatever it is at your house, the best gift that you can give is to listen to your parents. That's verse 9 through 10, isn't it? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Jesus says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. I love how our fruitfulness and God's glory is intimately tied with God's love. Again, it's a reminder that we're not trying here to prove ourselves, but that it's all within the context of his love. Because in Christ, for God's children, the way we love our God is to listen to him, to keep his words. The measure of our fruitfulness is not dependent upon our production, but how we treasure him how we keep being in his words, how we continue to cherish his commandments. It's like saying, Father, your words are what teaches me who you are. Your words are what teaches me who I am, how I should live, how I should love. That's how we abide in him. That's how we glorify him. That's fruitfulness. That's spiritual liveliness. And then we see in verse 11, our guaranteed fruit also is fullness of joy. Look at verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, let me remind us in this very difficult season of our, of our lives through the pandemic and so much going on, let me still remind you from the word that the Christian life isn't meant to be drudgery, that the Christian life isn't meant to be a misery, 
that the Christian life is meant to be joyful. Amen? To experience fullness of joy. Jesus says, I have spoken these things to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Not partial joy, not sort of joy, not sometimes joy, but fullness of joy. I want to ask you this afternoon, do you know this joy? Psalm 16, 11 says, you will make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And through Jesus, God made known that path of life, that presence of fullness of joy. We know it. We have it in Christ. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it may be a good time for you to examine your hearts this afternoon. Do you know these fruits in your life? God's faithfulness in answered prayers. God's glory in treasuring his word and in loving his word. Do you experience fullness of joy? Even in the midst of suffering, unquenchable, undeniable, certain, guaranteed joy. As in the words of 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Does that mark who you are as a child of God? If not, why not? If not, why not? You can claim to be a professor of Christianity all you want, yet what evidence testifies of your claim? I ask any children who say they love Jesus, my children always say they love Jesus. Well, let me ask you this question. How does your life show your fruitfulness? You see, these verses tells us whoever abides in Jesus will surely, will certainly be fruitful. That's point number one. Point number two and three are much shorter. How do we persevere when trials come our way? Point number two, regard one another in sacrificial love from verses 12 through 17. Look at verses 12 through 17 with me, 12 through 15 with me first. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You see, Jesus knows days are coming ahead when the disciples will be scattered. In just a few hours, Jesus will be betrayed by their own Judas Iscariot, their traveling buddy for the past three years. Jesus knew it, but they didn't. Jesus knew suspicion will grow amongst each other. Jesus knew division will spread amid them because of fear. But Jesus says in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, Jesus was calling his disciples to a divine love that carnal people, natural-minded people could not fathom. Isn't that true? This world is all about survival of the fittest. This world promotes dog eat dog. Only the strong survive. But Jesus says, as I have loved you, love one another. Love each other. Love fellow brothers and sisters as Christ loved the church. As Jesus already said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In his command to his disciples, of course, although they could not understand it, then they would come to understand afterwards that the love that Jesus was commanding his disciples to follow was the way Jesus loved his very own. That's verse 13, right? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was again foretelling them of his death, the death that he would undergo on the cross for their sins. Brothers and sisters, hear it from the very lips of Jesus. The world know no greater love than this, 
Contrary to what the world says that everyone is entitled to whatever love they want. Contrary to what the world promotes that every individual defines what love is. Jesus says there is no greater love. And you and I who are part of this gathering, the gathering of his elect, know this love. And are currently loved and will be loved to the end by the greatest love of God. Amen? Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. That God, who is holy and just, created all things in love for his glory and for our joy. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to trust in himself, wanting to be a God for himself, deliberately disobeying God's word. As a result, we were separated from God, completely helpless and incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. But God, in his mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem us and forgive us of our sins and for us to know his great love. By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, and he took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid the debt that we would have paid in eternal hell. They thought he was dead. They buried him in a tomb. They thought it was done. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice, which meant that Christ defeated Satan, sin, and death forever, that whosoever would repent and believe in him will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection and live the new life here on earth and eternal life forevermore. So if you are here and you are not a Christian, thank you so much for being here. We're so glad that you are here. But since you are here, let me ask you a serious question. What love do you seek? What love do you seek? Earthly love, as good as it may seem, is imperfect and disappointing. Perhaps you have experienced such incomplete love in your life through your parents, through your siblings, through your spouse, through your children, through your friends, through people who have hurt you. But God's love, God's love is different. Amen? It's otherworldly. He laid down his life for you to know his love and for you to have life and to be able to love him in return and to love others. His love is long-suffering. His love is everlasting. And his love is is for you. If you would repent of your sins, turn from your sins, believe that Jesus died and rose again for you, and if you trust him with your whole life today, tomorrow, and forever. I want to encourage you again, don't leave this place without telling someone you want to know more about how to follow Jesus. Talk to me at the back door, at the close of service. Talk to John at this door. Talk to Pastor Jeremy at the the, the outside door or someone else sitting next to you about how you can be a recipient of the greatest love the world has ever known. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved members of NCBC, what gift have we been given to know and own and to be able to share this love? Jesus says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And according to verse 15, we are no longer servants, but friends. Why? Because in verse 15, we are told Jesus made known the very thoughts of God. That's what we also studied on Wednesday night Bible study from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16, didn't we? That God has made known to us the secret and hidden wisdom of God, the depths of God, the very thoughts of God. There is no secrecy, see, between us and God. There is no hidden agenda from God. He is our Father. We are His sons and daughters. We are His chosen. We are His appointed. That's verse 16. We will go and bear fruit, and our fruit will remain. And whatever we ask the Father, it will be given to us. And all these things, look at the end of verse 17 all these things so that, so that you will love 
one another. Brothers and sisters, how are you doing today, this week, loving one another? How are you doing loving your mother and father? How are you doing loving your husband and wife? How are you doing loving your children? How are you doing upholding your church covenant, the covenant we committed to uphold when we joined this church? Are you fine with you and God, yet far from church members? Are you good with God, yet have division, suspicion, wrong assumptions in your heart with a fellow brother or sister? How can you be like Christ? Lay down your life, your pride, your selfish motives, your entitlement, your wrong judgment, and love one another. How can you relate to others in such sacrificial love? You see, the entire point of this passage, again, is so that you may persevere in the faith. And you cannot do it alone. You need others. You need this church. You are not good on your own. You cannot be a friend of God if you do not love one another. That's the point. Amen? Third and finally, much shorter point, how do we persevere when trials come our way? Third and finally, remember Jesus in persecution, verses 18 and on. You see, Jesus assures his disciples one inevitable fact. Trials will come. Persecution will come. Difficult days will come. But when it comes, remember Jesus' example. Remember Jesus' words. Remember the Spirit's help. So remember Jesus' example. Remember how they hated Jesus. That's verse 18 and 19. It says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When the world hates you, that is just evidence that you are of Christ. When the world hates you, that's just evidence that you are of Jesus. When persecution comes, Remember Jesus' words. That's verse 20 through 25. Let me just read verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. That last phrase can be a little bit confusing, but basically Jesus is saying, if they didn't keep my word, or they didn't listen to my words, or they refused my words, they will also refuse yours. So pay no mind. Keep at it. Keep abiding. Keep proclaiming. And remember also, finally, that you are not alone. Jesus says, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending you a helper. That's verse 26 and 27. Look with me to those verses. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus is saying, you abide in me. You trust me and look to me. You keep my words and let my spirit in you do the work. Let the spirit in you testify. Let the spirit in you bear fruit. So brothers and sisters, as we conclude, my question for you again, how are you doing abiding? How are you remaining in Jesus these days? Jesus says in John 16, 1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And in 16.4, Jesus says, but I've said all these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So, brothers and sisters, no matter what you are facing today, no matter what troubles come your way, may we remain in Jesus. May we relate to others in sacrificial love. May we remember Jesus in persecution and trials as those who have confident hope that Jesus is indeed coming back again. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the beautiful reminder to abide in you, to abide in you, to remain in you. Father, we thank you for the encouraging reminder that whoever is connected with you will bear fruit. That is our identity. That is our security. That is our guarantee. Father, help anyone here to examine if they are not connected to you. Father, may they hear these words as an invitation to repent, believe, and trust in you. For you alone has shown us, shown humanity, the greatest love. Help them to receive it, accept it, and follow you. And help us as children of God to love others as Christ has loved us. We thank you for the promise that you are coming back. Help us to hold fast. Help us to abide. Help us to remain. In Jesus' name, amen.